This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I invite you, if you're going to be remaining here, to take a seat. Welcome back. How was lunch? Okay. Cool. Nice. Okay. You know, I don't look forward to afternoon meetings, I'll be honest, especially if they're right after lunch. Um, I remember one time a friend of mine explained the afternoon meeting as being the greatest picture of the great controversy, the end time events that we'll get before we get there, Um, because it is essentially the battle of the stomach against the mind, and the flesh wants to, to sleep, but the mind wants that spiritual food. So um, I don't envy you guys having to sit there and stay awake. It's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. We've got a really boring presentation lined up for you this afternoon. Um, how many of you got one of these, these leaflets on your chair? Okay, so um, essentially this is a podcast um, that... Myself and a friend of mine started in August of this year. Um, We release one episode every two weeks. It's called Why They Did That. And it's essentially what um, you witnessed if you were joining us for the last presentation. Um, We take one Bible character, we zoom in to one aspect of their life, and we ask, why did they do that? And we look to go deep, we look to go um, beyond the actions and to look at the motivations. This is as I shared with those of you who have been here from the beginning in the book of education, it says that the Bible bibliographies um, are the most valuable part of the Bible to educators um, because they contain material that is true to life. It shows the motives and the actions. So we look for the motives in this. And we've got nine episodes out right now. Um, It's wonderfully produced. I can say that because I'm not the producer. Um, It sounds great. It takes a lot of time to make a single episode. Um, so you can check that out if you have Apple Podcasts, if you have Spotify, or if you can, wherever else you may find a podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram. Um, I encourage you to do that if you are an Instagram user um, at why they did that. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. But Instagram is really where it is nowadays. Um, so that's kind of our hub. So if you're not really into the social media game, you can still listen to the the each episode, um, either on Spotify, iTunes, or you can visit our website, whythedidthat.org. It's fantastic for family worships. Um, it's great for traveling in the car, long journeys. Um, it's great for everything. everything. There you go. You said it. I didn't say it. So if you do have time, check it out. We also have a booth downstairs. If you've been to the exhibit hall, we are the big, bright, sunflower yellow booth, kind of like this color. Um, and it has loads of cool pictures of Bible characters. So if you're interested in listening to any previews of those episodes, we have one-minute snippets downstairs with some cool Beats headphones. If you just want to say, you know, I went to GYC and I tried on a pair of Beats headphones, that's more than a good enough reason to come, I'm sure. Um, so come down and check us out. I'll be there from the moment the exhibits open until they close. That's why they did that. You can find us on all social media and all podcast platforms. With that being said, I'd like to go straight into... Our um, reading topic today, and we'll be looking at, or at least for now, 
we'll be looking at the character of Naaman. So I invite you to turn to your Bibles in 2 Kings chapter 5, and let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we invite your presence to be back here in this room with us this afternoon. We're grateful, Lord, for the food. We pray that it wouldn't be a hindrance to our mind. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to concentrate and focus. Um, Help us, Lord, to give you our attention. And please, it's our prayer that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is our second last seminar, seminar number five. We have another one coming up just after this on the character of Samson. Um, So that's something that you don't want to miss unless unless you've got something else planned and then you do want to miss it, and that's also fine. Um, So I just want to share with you, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, um, the ultimate tip when it comes to reading the Bible. Let's read this together. Okay, always ask why. Someone at the front messed that up big time. Let's try again. Okay, and what she wanted to say was also question everything. Question everything. Not always ask question everything, but always ask why and question everything. Not from a skeptical point of view, nor from a doubtful point of view, but come to the Bible with a healthy curiosity, seeking that God Um, has reasons for the things that he does. Now, there's something that I want to share with you that I think is very important, especially as the new year approaches. It's not about how much you have read. It's about how you've read what you've read. It's not about how much you have read. It's about how you've read what you've read. I think this is important because as the new year rolls in, how many of you have ever done one of those, um, those Bible reading plans, right, where you try and read the whole Bible in a year? How many of you have started that and then failed somewhere along the line? So more of you than have failed than have even started. That doesn't even make sense, but that's okay. I know it's the afternoon. You're tired. I understand. But I relate. I've tried that many times and failed every single time. But I'm actually not disappointed about that. Um, I, I think perhaps those plans are asking us to read a little bit too quickly. Um, I think it would be kind of cool to do a Genesis plan. How about you spend the whole year just reading Genesis? There's 50 chapters. Um, there's 52 weeks. You give yourself a two-week holiday in there um, and read one chapter a week. Um, and I think if we slowed down a little bit when it comes to reading the Bible, we'd actually find it a lot more enjoyable. Some of us are in the habit of reading so that we can say we've read. We wake up, we feel convicted to spend time with the Lord first first thing in the morning as we should, but our devotions become a checklist. Have I prayed? Yes. Have I read my Bible? Yes. Do I feel close to the Lord? Yes. So am I close to the Lord? Therefore, yeah, okay, maybe quickly get out, run, go about your day. Hoping that what you experienced that morning, if you experienced anything, um, is enough to keep the Lord with you. And essentially what happens is we relegate this to just a kind of fix. Something that we need, that we tell ourselves we need to try and help ourselves feel spiritual. And that is not at all the point of the Bible. And so I would encourage you, if you're all about the yearly reading plans, go for it. Absolutely go for it. I'd say slow down a little. Slow down just a little. 
There is absolutely merit in going from the beginning to the end of the Bible. I believe that. Um, but that's not, in, that's not the order in which they were written. That's not even the order of the events. Um, so what I would, my advice would be to take books and take narratives and read those. It's great to have that timeline. It's great to know when things happen. Okay, here's the beginning, here's the end, and all that happens in between. But if you really want to get something out of the Bible, put the handbrakes on a little bit. Slow down and try and digest what you're reading. Try and digest what you're reading. Um, someone that played an integral part in the foundation of our church, his name was William Miller. And it said that William Miller read the Bible one verse at a time. And he didn't move on to the next verse until he knew he understood what he just read. Uh, so that would have taken him some time, a good number of years. So I encourage you guys, uh, if you're going to go for the Bible year reading plan, then yeah, sure, great. But on the side, slow down. Slow down. The time that you spend with God, slow it down. Think of this as a relationship. If you're in a relationship and the person just came and they started speaking at you a hundred miles an hour, hey, how's it going? How's it doing? What was your day? Whoa. What are you going to want to do? You're going to want them to slow down. I think sometimes God wants us to slow down too. So today we're going to slow down. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to just stay there for the entire time that we're here. Did we pray already? Yeah? Did we pray? Okay. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. This is our introduction to Naaman. Our introduction to this Syrian, as he's called later on in the book. This is essentially the kind of introduction that the Bible gives us whenever it in, uh, introduces us to a protagonist, to someone that the Bible wants us to like. Right? You're not going to get this kind of thing out of Judas. With Judas, you just get, and there was Judas who, you know, betrayed Jesus. Um, but when it comes to introducing characters like David, characters um, like Samson even, we're given these, these quick kind of biopic reports of who these people are. Naaman, a lot of good things is said about Naaman. In fact, um, these things actually mirror what is said about David in 1 Samuel as he's about to play for Saul. It says David is a mighty man in war, and he's, he was very comely, very good-looking, very handsome. Um, and it, it goes on to say he was a mighty man of valor. And then it ends by saying, and the Lord was with him. David is all of these things, but he's defined. He is who he is because the Lord is with him. Now, Samson has a similar, sorry, Naaman has a similar introduction. We, we hear all of these great things about him, but what defines him is what is said at the end, which is a common form of Hebrew rhetoric in that, but he was a leper. This is who Naaman is. This is the part of his life that is just plaguing his soul. He's a great guy. In fact, if we didn't know that, this was, that we were speaking about Naaman, we would likely just assume that we're speaking about a Christian. Look at what it says. It says he's captain of the host of the king. 
He's a great man with his master. He's honorable. Catch this. Because by him, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. In essence, the Lord used Naaman as captain of the Syrian army to defeat the Israelites. Take that in for a second. God used Naaman, I believe because of Naaman's character, as captain of the host of Syria to defeat God's own people. Israel lost against Syria, yes, because of their own unfaithfulness, but also because Naaman was on the other side. Now, that might throw you off a little bit, in that God is using other armies to defeat His own. And I'm okay if that throws you off, because it's just more things to read, more things to study. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, most of the sermons and Bible stories and so on and so forth that I've heard around about Naaman normally center around this little girl. Have you had any experience in the same? This wonderful little young lady who no doubt received a fantastic home education, so much so that when, when she was taken as captive out of her home into a foreign land, she was still a witness for the Lord. Praise God for that. But look what she says. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now all we're trying to do in today's session is we're trying to gain a clear picture of who Naaman is. It's essentially a character study. Now this young girl, she is a what? She's a Hebrew. Okay? She's a Hebrew. She's an Israelite. She says, bear in mind her situation, having been taken as a captive. She has been kidnapped. All right? This is, this is child trafficking. She's been taken as a captive to a foreign land. She's essentially now a servant. And she goes to Naaman's wife and says, you know what? If my prophet was here, he'd heal Naaman. Why? Why would the prophet heal Naaman? You remember that when Jesus was speaking about leprosy, he said that there were, there were tons of lepers in all of Israel, but the only one that God hailed was the Syrian Naaman. The only one that he healed was the Syrian Naaman. Why? It can't be that, you know, whichever prophet she's speaking about just has a love for healing lepers because he hasn't healed any yet. But according to this little maid, if, if that prophet was in Samaria, then Naaman would be healed. Why? I think that Naaman and the maid are actually quite similar I think there's a number of similarities between the two of them. One of them being that they have someone that they work for. Naaman works for the king. She works for Naaman's wife. They are subservient to at least someone. 
Another thing is that they're both in a particular situation that neither of them want to be in. She, no doubt, doesn't want to be some woman's slave, but she's doing it well. Naaman obviously doesn't want to be a leper. This man was a soldier. This man killed Israelites, her people. But this little girl, faithful as she is, sees in this man someone that she wants to see healed. Now that should tell you something about Naaman. That this little girl is not just saying, I know a prophet who has the ability to heal leprosy, but rather if the prophet that I do know was here, he would actually in fact heal Naaman. She sees something in this man and she's saying, he'd be healed. And so the story progresses, and one went in. I love this verse just because of its ambiguity. And one went in. Who? We don't know. And told his Lord, saying, thus and thus said the maid. It's just so ambiguous. There's hardly any words in this verse. Thus and thus said the maid that is of the king of Israel. We've got no idea really what was said. All we know is that once this little girl blurts out, by the way, I know someone that can heal this guy, things just start to happen. The ball starts rolling. Someone runs into the Lord, um, their king, saying, thus and thus said the maid. He's just trying to get to the point as quickly as possible. And the king of Syria said, go to go. Now, he doesn't have a stutter, I don't think. But if you just slow down a little bit, you start to see what the king thinks about Naaman. He's not just saying, okay, let's, let, let's get this ball moving. He's saying, go, 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 go. What would you say? What would you call that? Urgency. Once the king hears that Naaman can, might actually be healed, that there's a possibility, he tells him, listen, listen, go, go, go. Let's, let's see if this will work. That tells you something about Naaman. He's not just another soldier. The king does not see him as expendable nor replaceable. Go to go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel, the nation, by the way, that they've just defeated. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And like I said, no information in the Bible. No mere information in the Bible. Everything that is recorded is recorded for a purpose. This, what we find in verse 5, is what we would call a king's ransom. It is what a king would pay a foreign king or someone who has one of his people captive. He would pay this to free them from that. Now, Israel doesn't have anyone captive that belongs to Syria, but they do perhaps have someone that can heal Naaman. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Now who said that the king of Israel could heal the leper? No one. No one said that. This is perhaps the problem with, with the thus and thus. 
because perhaps someone overhears the conversation that the maid has and she and they just they just leg it out of the room and they're straight and they say listen king i know someone that can heal that can heal uh, naaman i i think he's the king of israel let's let's just go and make that happen and so the king gets a letter essentially explaining that the the ruler of the opposing army that just defeated them is saying uh heal him heal my servant that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Verse 7, And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he ripped his clothes off. It's okay to laugh, that's funny. He hears, he reads what's in the letter, he probably doesn't read it, he probably has someone else to read it with him. He sees Syrians show up outside his door, He thinks it's probably game on. They've come back for a second round, having already decimated them in the first. And they open up this parchment and they say, Oh, dear king of Israel, you know, no long live the king or anything silly like that. Uh, But dear king of Israel, here's Naaman. He has leprosy and you're going to heal him. And so the the king hears this and starts ripping his clothes off. I don't know about you, but I find that kind of funny. He just starts ripping his clothes off. And, and, and whilst, whilst there is humor in that, I think, it's not really funny at all, is it? Suddenly, the army that's just wiped the floor with you is at your beckoning. They're here and they need something from you. They need something that can only be supernatural. And the king panics. Rips his clothes off and then says these words. Am I God? The king has a fantastic opportunity to be a witness. And his response is, am I God? Am I God to kill and make alive that this man doth sent me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. In other words, the king of Israel says this, I know what you guys are doing. You're sending me someone that has, that has leprosy and that you've given me this impossible task to heal him. And if I tell you that I can't heal him, I know what you guys are going to do to us. He's scared. Fearful. Am I God? And it was so. I think this story just gets funnier and funnier. When Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had ripped his clothes off, (laughs) that he sent to the king saying, Why have you ripped your clothes off? (laughs) Why are you ripping your clothes off? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. That's Elisha. That's Elisha. You see, sometimes we miss these characters. Sometimes we read it as though though Elisha comes to the king and says, "Um, King, just send him over to me, and I'll show him that there is, in fact, a prophet in Israel. No, no. Elisha has personality. Do you know why Elisha has personality? Any guesses? Because he's a person. And that's, that's funny, but how often do we read through this book and completely bypass the fact that we're actually talking about real people here? 
Elisha was a real person. The king of Syria was a real person. Naaman was a real person. And the Bible gives us these, these, these glimpses into who they actually were. Could, have Elijah, could, could Elijah have said, you know what, um, yeah, just send him over, I'll heal him. But it says, he says, king, why are you ripping your clothes off? It's unnecessary. It's embarrassing. If you can't do it, that's fine. Keep your clothes on. Right, just send them over here, I'll, I'll sort it out. But you don't have to do that. Right? We're embarrassed enough, they just defeated us, and now they're coming, and, and they're coming to the king, and the king's getting naked, it's just stop. I'll sort it out. Now, who asks for Naaman to go to Elisha's house? Not a trick question. Who asks for Naaman to be sent to Elisha's house? Elisha. Bear that in mind. It's important. Elisha is the one that requests that Naaman visit him. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now, where is the mere information in that passage? Now, I know I said there's no mere information, but if I didn't say that, what would you say in this passage is just merely information? Anyone? Yes. Okay, he stood at the door. Great, that's one. What's the other one? He came with his horses and chariots. You see, when we read these verses, often what we do is we just read, it's kind of like we're playing it out in our mind, just looking for a picture. We just read that Naaman just showed up. But the Bible's giving us more information. Naaman didn't just show up. He, in fact, showed up with his horses and his chariot. And then, what does he do? He stands outside Elisha's door. Now we said, you know, that Naaman, Naaman is a good guy. He's, he's respectful, he's honorable, he's liked, he's loved. But when he gets to Elisha's house, he shows up, pomp and pride, horses and chariots in tow, and just stands outside the house. Why? Mind you, it doesn't even state that he gets out of the chariot. He likely, he likely has some open-top chariot, and he just shows up, and he's just standing in the chariot outside the house. Just waiting. No knock. I mean, perhaps he shows up with a trumpet in tow, announcing his arrival, but he just stands outside. This is a character study of who Naaman is. He shows up and stands outside. And stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Here's how I think it's going to play out. Or I think, in, at least in Naaman's mind. He shows up and he waits. Do you know why he waits? Because whether this is a prophet or not, this is a prophet of the defeated nation of Israel. The nation that has, in fact, been defeated by Syria, in fact. Because of Naaman, in fact. And so he can just stand outside and wait for the prophet to come to him. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Verse 9. 
sorry, verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him. Naaman standing outside the door, Elisha's going to come out. Surely. I mean, he's the one that requested me to come. And so he's, he's out there, he's waiting and he's waiting. And no doubt Elisha knows he's out there, knows what's going on. And so Elisha sends one of his servants to go. And so Naaman isn't in fact greeted by the prophet of Israel. He's greeted by someone. He doesn't even get to hear from the prophet. He doesn't even get to see the prophet. He's just told, by the way, I'm one of the servants of Elisha, and here's what you need to do. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. I want you to imagine this situation. This guy is captain of the host of the leading army in the world at this time, and a slave of a defeated prophet shows up and said, if you really want to be healed, you should take a bath. In fact, I'd recommend seven of them. That's very hard to read. (laughs) Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will come back to you and you'll be clean. Now imagine hearing those words. I mean, we're not... We're not captains of armies, we're not, we're not soldiers, but I can imagine if the person sitting next to you, halfway through this seminar, just leant over and just very politely said, look, I don't want to offend you, but you really should consider having a shower tonight. <laughs> Naturally, you're, you're, you start to arch, you're like, whoa, whoa, you're too close, and they're, they're saying the same, you're too close. You need to have a bath, seven of them. Go and wash yourself seven times and you'll be clean. Naaman shows up and stands out the door, outside the door. What do you think that's hinting at in his character? He doesn't even approach the prophet. He waits for the prophet to come to him. Pride. And so God meets pride with humility. Go and wash yourself. How humbling. Now, Naaman, of course, doesn't take this very well. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, I love this, because this is proof of what Ellen White said in the book of Education. It allows us, these Bible biographies allow us to see into the motivations of the character. Behold, this is what I thought. This is what was going through my mind when I received word that the prophet could heal me. I thought that he will surely come out to me, which is why he stays in the chariot. I was sure that this prophet was going to come out and meet me, and and, and we'll read, and stand, in other words, and stand before me, or if he's in his chariot, it is in fact stand under me, and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Visions of grandeur. Naaman doesn't think lowly of himself. He knows who he is and he stands outside the prophet's door and he's played this out in his mind already. The prophet of Israel is going to come out, is going to stand before me, shall raise his hand above me, shall call on the name of the Lord his God, and a miracle will just come down. This is what I deserve. This is what is due to me. 
Elisha sends a servant with a message to go and wash. He, he, he continues to wax lyrical, verse 12. Are not Abana and Farfar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? It, it, I don't know, I don't know. I, I just find it funny. I just find it funny that they came to him and said, you need to go and wash. And he says, well, if I, if I was really going to wash, I would go to the rivers in my own country. I mean, water's water, bro. <laughs> but you know what this hints at? Nationalism. Nationalism. If, I, if this would really work, then it would definitely work in my country. You know why? Because my country is better than your country. My country defeated your country. My waters are not the rivers in my land greater than yours. May I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away and went, he turned and went away in a rage. I want you to picture this. I want you to picture this. This is a mighty man. Everyone in Syria knows Naaman. And I would, I would hypothesize that most people in Israel do too. And he's, he seems like a wonderful guy to an extent. But he has a problem that's plaguing his life and that is leprosy. And when God comes to him and says, I can deal with that. I can sort this out. But this is what's required. He turns away in a rage. Because for Naaman, it's either going to be done the way that he wants or it's not going to be done at all. Did I say Naaman or did I say Dean? Are we not the same? Are we not reading about ourselves right here? How many times has God offered us a way out, but because it's not the way we wanted, we don't take it? Because that way out results in a drastic turn of humility, we'd rather not. Naaman's a leader. And the majority of leaders are plagued with this disease of not being able to express humility. Because if you're not a leader then the one thing that you will appreciate from leaders is when they can admit that they got it wrong. For me, that's a sign of a really good leader. When they can hold up their hand and say, you know what, yeah, my bad. Like genuinely, my bad. Naaman hears this clause that's given for his healing. Just go and wash in the Jordan, no doubt, seven times. And he turns away in a rage. But... And I praise God for people like this. Verse 13, His servants came near and spoke unto him and said, My father, if the prophet would have bid you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? I want you to recognize something. I believe that God uses these servants. I believe God uses these servants. And do you know how they reach Naaman? Through thinking. They reach him through logic. 
They say, Naaman, we understand why you're upset, but listen, master, they even call him father, please, listen, let's think about this. Let's rationalize what you've been asked to do. If he had asked you to do some great thing, then you probably would have done it. He's asked you to do something so small. Don't you think it's worth it? Don't you think it's worth just trying it? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times. In my experience, this is the difference between a lot of unbelievers and Christians. You can reason with them. You can reason with them. If you get an honest one, you can reason with them. They're not trying to win a debate here. But I don't know if you've ever tried to sit down with a non-Adventist and have a rational, logical conversation about why the Sabbath is still to be kept today, and all you're met with is the most illogical reasoning. In fact, we even do the same thing within Adventism. The most obvious things are met with just pure emotionalism and sentimentalism. And we can't reason. And we end up looking dumb on both sides. And here these servants approach their master. They humble themselves before him. And they win him with logic. Now logic isn't the end. It isn't the be all and end all. I think a lot of Adventists have been reached with logic as well. Only though. Logic without the gospel. You know what's logic? Prophecy. Prophecy, the way that we tend to present it nowadays, is just pure logic. This is how we do it. We say, well, we would like to invite you to our Daniel and Revelation seminar. In our Daniel seminar, you'll see this image. And this image represents Babylon, and it represents Medo-Persia, and Greece, and Rome, and then divided Rome, divided Europe. And then, and then here's what we'll show you. We'll show you that, that it was prophesied that the kingdom would rise at this time and fall at this time and rise at this time and fall at this time and rise at this time and fall at this time, rise at this time and fall at this time, and then it would be divided. And what we would really like you to know is that all of these things that were prophesied came true on the exact year that the Bible said it would do so. And there's logical people out there that are like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I guess that means that the Bible is true, and I guess that means that God is real. And they become Christians. Some of them become even Seventh-day Adventists, but all they are are convinced people. They're just convinced. Very little conviction and almost no conversion, but convinced. What happens is someone comes along with a more complicated argument and then they're convinced right out of the church. The goal of prophecy and the goal of the scripture is not to convince you that the Bible is true. The goal of prophecy is, to, is so that the, the day star would arise in our hearts. The goal of prophecy is that we would be pointed to Jesus Christ, not pointed to biblical mathematics. I feel strongly about this if you didn't catch that. Because I've seen so many of my friends come in through these seminars... And just leave when it gets a bit boring. Because there was no change of heart. Not because they didn't want their heart to change, but because they never felt compelled to. Because the gospel was never presented really. 
maybe the reason why we're still here, maybe the reason why we're on our 17th or 16th GYC, is because most of us are just convinced. With very little conviction and almost no conversion. Logic worked to an extent to get Naaman to do what God had originally asked him to do, and that was to go and wash, and so he does. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It worked. He was healed. Amen. His leprosy was gone, and skin like unto a baby was given to him. How amazing it would be if the story stopped there. But it doesn't. In fact, even the next part is pretty cool. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. Notice the difference in language. Jump back to verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of Elisha. After his conversion in verse 15, and he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and came and stood before him. He's not standing, he's not standing above him anymore. He's standing before him. Because not only has his actual leprosy been healed, but his heart has been changed, evidenced by what he says next. Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Medical missionary work. Right there. Healing straight to conversion. In fact, it's healing in the word of the Lord and conversion. But can I share something with you? Elisha's evangelism methods are nothing like ours today. Because if you and I were at home, and someone showed up outside of our door, and they came with a message that said, this person is seeking for your God to do something amazing in their life, you and I would be quicker than Sonic the Hedgehog in the way that we race out to that front door. There's someone out there that actually wants to know? (laughs) Elisha's like, he doesn't even go out to meet him. He doesn't even engage in conversation. In fact, I believe Elisha, with his, with his, with his prophetic um, foresight, knows that in sending the, the servant out, he's just going to anger Naaman. And he wins us all. Crazy. He's not desperate for the conversion. He's not desperate for the conversion. At least he doesn't show it. He has a rather unique method of evangelism. Here's a man that's struggling with pride. I'm going to now make him angry. Quickest way to get fired if you're a pastor. Hold an evangelistic series, everyone shows you, just make them really vex. And then they leave and they say, I'm never coming back here again. That's Naaman. He comes to the evangelistic series. The prophet says, meh. 
And he's like, that's it, I'm done with this place. I'm gone and I'm never coming back. Evangelism. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that if you really want to win someone in your family, go home and make them really angry. I'm just saying that it worked for Elisha. Naaman comes back having had this experience and said, there is no God in all of the earth. Do you think he includes Syria in that? I think so. There's no God in all of the earth save the one that is in Israel. He's converted. I pray thee take a blessing. Now, what time do we finish? Anyone know? Is it 3.30? I think that's a yes. Okay. He says, you know what? I'd like to give you a gift. Why do you think he wants to give him a gift? Some would say gratitude. Naturally, someone gives you something, you feel like you should give something back. But could it be that perhaps, perhaps Naaman is trying to pay for the service that he received? Thank you, I now know that there is no other God in all of Israel. Please accept this gift. Look at Elisha. But he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand. You know, the word stand is very important in this chapter. Naaman stands outside of the house of Elisha. After his conversion, he stands before Elisha. And then we find out that Elisha stands underneath the Lord. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Wonderful sermon, Pastor. Thank you so much. Please just take this gift of appreciation. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time you come back. Elisha is a kind of minister that will go to your church, and when you try to give him a thank you offering, he rejects it. And when you urge it, because it just kind of looks awkward now at the front, everyone's just like, ah. and, and they're trying to give him a gift. He's like, no. And they're like, oh no, please, please, you know, please. He's like, no. And like, no, Elisha. Elisha, please. And he's like, no. <laughs> I'm not going to take it. Because I cannot accept any responsibility for what has taken place. And I think this is one of those hidden motives as to why Elisha doesn't come out in the first place. Because he knows that if Naaman goes ahead with it, naturally as a Syrian with his particular worldview, he's going to want to just thank the man that gave him the instructions. So Elisha says, this has nothing to do with me. And Naaman says this, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to the servant two burdens of earth? You know, I'm telling you guys, if you're not enjoying reading the Bible, it's because you're just not reading it. Before his conversion, Naaman was told to go and dip himself in the river Jordan. And for him, it was too dirty. He said the rivers back home are cleaner. Now he's undergone such a transformation that he's literally begging Elisha for dirt. Can you see the irony here? He's like, please, can I just have two mules of earth? I would like to take some of your dirt from Israel, which is the dirt that, that, filth, that, that, that makes the river Jordan filthy in the first place. I would like to take that dirt and take it back to my house. Literally a complete transformation. 
Do you know why he wants the dirt? Though look, for thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. They would always build altars on the land that God had given them. That's what Abraham would go. The Lord would begin the covenant with him. He's like, okay, well, I have to build an altar here now. Naaman has just had this experience with God, and he says, I need to build an altar, but I can't stay here. This isn't my land. So I'm going to take some of the land of Israel, the God of whom I now believe in, and I'm going to take it back to my country so I can worship their God in my country. How many of you think this man sounds like he's converted? And now verse 18 is undoubtedly a verse in which none of you have ever heard a sermon on. I'm willing to take that to the bank. In this thing... The Lord pardon thy servant. Yes, Naaman is asking for forgiveness before he even does the thing he says he's going to do. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon the servant in this thing. Now, if there was too many houses of Rimmon in that paragraph for you, let me explain. Naaman says this, Elisha, prophet of whom God has used to bring healing into my life, I want you to know I'm going home. Now, when I go home, I'm going to need you to forgive me for something. Okay. That when my master goes into the house of Rimmon, the house of Rimmon is essentially that, the Assyrian worship temple. When my master goes in there, he says, to worship, and he leans on my hand. So where is, where is Naaman? In that same temple, right? In that same temple of worship. When my master goes in there and leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, what, what, is, what is bowing an act of? Worship. worship. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on, sermon on this verse? Nice. Okay. Cool. First time ever. Now, this is one of those things where if you're not asking why, it's because you don't have eyes. How does that make sense? You know what's even more crazy? Look at verse 19. And he said, go in peace. Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Is Naaman going to worship the God of Rimmon? Or in the house of Rimmon? The key here, he says, when my master goes into the house of Rimmon there and leans on my hand, why is he leaning on his hand? What do you think? Any theories? When you bow down, what do you do? Well, you just go for it, right? Why would someone need to lean on someone's hand when bowing down? Yeah. Sorry? Okay, maybe he has a habit of fainting? Perhaps. Perhaps he's, maybe he's epileptic? Or perhaps he's an old man. Is that what you're going to say? Maybe he had a bad knee because he's an old man. Yeah, you guys are together on the same page. He says, when my master goes in and my master goes to bow down, who's the emphasis on here? 
his master, when my master goes to bow down and he leans on my hand and I bow down with him, because it'd be incredibly awkward if someone is leaning on you and going down and you just stay standing and they just fall. It defeats the whole purpose. So when I bow down with him, I want you to know, this is what Naaman is saying, the brother is so converted that he's afraid that people might just even think that he's not. He said, I'm going to have to go here because this is my master. I have to, I'm subservient to him. I have to do what he's telling me to do. But I want you to know that even if I'm in that temple, and even if it looks as though I'm worshipping that God, I'm not. Elisha, I promise you I'm not. I'm just there because I have to be. Now, how you take this and apply it, you know, in your own churches, when people come in and they get converted and they say, yeah, I'm going to continue going to my church and continue going to your church. That's up to you. I don't know. It's a challenging verse. It's a challenging verse. But Elisha says, go in peace. In other words, go and, and, and do what you need to do. The narrative implication here is that eventually Naaman will have to make a decision when his master no longer needs him. When his master is no longer around and Naaman now has no need to continue attending that service, what is Naaman going to do then? And so Elisha leaves that up to Naaman and says, go and do it. Now this is where I wish the, tr- the story really ended. Verse 20 starts with one of the most horrible words ever recorded. But Gehazi. Whatever you do, don't name your children Gehazi. (laughs) Don't do it. You might think it's funny. Not funny. Don't name your children Gehazi for the love of God. Don't do it. This is one of those passages that I read and it literally makes my hairs stand on end because we have just witnessed, in my, in my own humble opinion, which means literally nothing, the greatest picture of conversion in the Old Testament. Complete transformation inside and out. And a man is literally heading back home. They know him. Leprosy is a visual thing. They can see that he's a leper. So when he shows up now in Syria and he's healed, what do you think he's going to tell them? Naaman, how were you healed? Well, I went to Israel. There's a prophet there. They healed me. Wow. What a testimony. But Gehazi. It says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, maybe even the one that went out to meet him in the first place, said, Behold, my master hath spared spared." Naaman, this Syrian. I mean, we all knew who Naaman was. You didn't need to identify him. Right? So why identify him? Gehazi is a corrupt servant, yeah. And we'll see just how corrupt he is in a moment. I would suppose to you, having read this verse, that Gehazi is a racist Christian. Right there. Behold, my master hath spared Naaman that Syrian. Racism was a thing in Elisha's time, I think. We're surprised that it's still a thing now. 
That's Syrian. In not receiving at his hands that which he brought, but as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. Picture it. Naaman is on the way back to Syria with a testimony, and Gehazi, thinking that he's doing the will of God, runs out of Elisha's house and chases down the Syrian and catches him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him. Don't miss this. When he showed up at Elisha's door, brother probably didn't even come out of the chariot. He's such a different person now that when he sees Elisha's servant running after him, he not only stops the chariot, but he gets out of the chariot. And then he approaches the servant of Elisha, and then he says, is everything okay? Gehazi says, yes. What? What do you mean, yes? If everything is well, why are you chasing me down like there's no tomorrow? Right? You're gone, and you're like, just sprinting off, and then you get there. And he's like, is everything okay? Yep. Oh, clearly is everything okay by the, way that, by the way that you're running after me. Everything is fine, he says. It's just, it's just my master, uh, he sent me saying, Behold, even now there come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please, can you give us a talent of silver and two changes of garments? Listen, there's, the sons of the prophets are coming and we just... We need to look after them, and we know that you have, you have extraordinary means. And so we're just wondering if, you know what you were going to give to Naaman? For his, if you could just give us just a little bit of that. We'll get there. He runs after him and says, this is what my master said. Now let me ask you a question. Who looks after the prophets? God. So who looks after the sons of the prophets? God does. So if there were, in fact, two wonderful sons of the prophets coming down from Mount Ephraim, no doubt God would be able to look after them. But according to the Gehazi, they need some help from this Syrian. And Naaman said, be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants, and they bare them before him. So in other words, he gives what is required to his own servants. And with Gehazi heading back to Elisha's house, Naaman's servants follow him carrying a payment. And when he came to the tower, he took them from his hand and bestowed them in the house, and he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Where have you come from, Gehazi? By the way, the exact same words that God uses to Satan in the book of Job. Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, Nowhere. Which is quite a curious answer when you think about it. If you've just walked inside and, and the prophet has seen... I mean, he's a prophet, right? If he was asleep, he still knew where you were. But nonetheless, he's awake. And you come inside and Elisha's there. And Elisha says, well, where have you come from? He said, nowhere. I was here all the time. Trying to cover up his lie with another lie. Thy servant went no whither. Rather Shakespearean of him. 
I didn't go anywhere at all. I was here. Watch verse 26. And he said unto him, Went not my heart with you? When you ran after that Syrian, my heart went with you. I saw what you did, Gehazi. He said, is it a time to receive money? Is it a time to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants? Is that what time it is, Gehazi? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out of his presence, a leper as, as white as snow. That might seem kind of harsh. Here's what happened. Gehazi runs after Naaman, accepts an offering or a payment from him, and then comes back and tries to hide his stash for his own gain. Elisha responds by cursing him, not just with leprosy, mind you, but with Naaman's leprosy, probably some advanced form of leprosy. And then he goes on to say, unto thy seed forever. It's going to be difficult enough for him to even have children, but if he does, they too will be plagued with leprosy. Maybe a little harsh? Maybe? Why? Well, Does anyone know what the major religion is in Syria today? Anyone know? Islam. Islam is, is, it almost completely covers Syria. It's a crazy high percentage. When Naaman leaves Israel, he's going back to Syria with this testimony. I met the God of Israel and he healed me, and I had to give nothing in return. I gave nothing to that God. I did nothing for that God. He simply healed me out of the love that is within his heart. That's the testimony that he takes back to Syria. All the Syrians that know Naaman now are presented with a God that is willing not just to heal his own, but to heal heathens and unbelievers. Even, even enemies, they're presented with a picture of a God that loves his own enemies. That's what Naaman takes back to Syria, but Gehazi. Because when Gehazi gets involved, when he meddles in the business of the Lord, if you want to know how much damage can one unconverted person do to the mission of the gospel, look at the story of Gehazi. Because Gehazi goes and he changes Naaman's testimony from God is willing to heal his enemies for free to God is willing to heal his enemies for a small price. And the message in one instance changes from Christianity to Islam. No longer is it about a God that is willing to heal his enemies for nothing in return, even if they reject him. But now he brings back a picture of a God that is willing to do something in your life as long as you do a few things in return. Now I don't know because a few more things happen later on in the chapters in this story. There's more to read about Elisha. There's more to read about Gehazi. But I just wonder, 
I just wonder what would have happened if Naaman was able to go back with the actual picture of the character of God that Elisha gave him. I just wonder how world events might be a little bit different. Because if you think that this is way too far in the past to affect present, then I don't know what world you're living in. Because there are countries being ripped to shreds even at this very time because they do not have the picture of God that we could have given them. So please, please do not think that you are so insignificant that you cannot affect change on a global level because Gehazi did. Gehazi did. It only takes one bad decision to change the character of God from the one that we read in the Bible to one that we hear about in the Quran. That you can appease God for just a small price. That the right works at the right time can bring God just a little bit closer to you. Never before has this world cried out for the actual message of righteousness by faith. And the commission, as our president gave us on, on, on Friday night, the commission, this great commission, is not a great option. You don't get to sit this one out. We will either prove God right or we will prove Him wrong. And as small and as insignificant as you may seem, in whatever corner of the earth you're stuck in, you have a part to play in righting the wrongs of those that have come before us. In righting the wrongs that we ourselves have made. If we truly believe that Jesus can come back in this generation, then that's on us. That's on us to take this gospel to the entire world. That's on us to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and so fill us that the earth is lighted with His glory. You can make a difference. Not only can you make a difference, but you need to make a difference. Not only do you need to make a difference, this world is crying out for you. This world is crying out for you to give them the picture of God that we know to be true. How many of you are willing to take that stand? How many want to say that today, from literally from this moment forward, I want to give that picture of the character of God. And I don't care how much it costs because, guys, this is not the time to be receiving money. And this is not the time to be receiving raiment and oxen and, and wild stock. This is a time to be sacrificing for the Lord. I hope Naaman got to take that, that real testimony back, but I don't know. Something tells me that maybe he didn't. God isn't calling us to be Gehazi's. It's my duty. It's your duty. It's the, DY, it's the duty of GYC, and it's the duty of the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
to take this gospel to the whole world and we can't do it without you. So let's do it together, amen? Father in heaven, Lord, you've given us that picture. You've given us this picture of who you are. And Father, we have marred it so many times. We have distorted it. We've painted over it. We've covered it. We've torn it. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the times when we thought that we were so insignificant and so small that our, our decisions and our choices didn't make didn't make a difference at all. Father, help us to right those wrongs. To those that we've given the wrong picture of you, help us to go and and to present the real one. Father, this world all around us is crumbling and some of that responsibility has to fall on us. Lord, help us to redeem that time. We ask in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.